can you be an alcoholic without hiding drinks in your pencil drawer at work? Can you be an alcoholic if you are not drinking first thing in the morning? Can you be an alcoholic and have just a six pack after work every day, but not wake up with a hangover? Yeah. So the stigma tells us that you have to be like the worst drinker in the entire world to have a problem. And either you're the absolute worst drinker ever, or you're fine. And that's not the case. I've never hidden drinks ever. Um, I never drank at work. I got my master's degree while I was drinking. Like you can be highly, highly functional and still have a problem. This is Meredith for real, the curious introvert, and I'm Meredith. I explore the questions people think but don't ask out loud, either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity by exploring the nuance and paradox of our world. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. The question here is one that so many people have asked themselves. Am I an alcoholic? Or maybe it sounds more like, should I take a break? Should I cut back? Is my drinking a problem? It's tempting to look for external answers to this problem. But what I love about this week's guest is that she not only approaches this subject with science, she suggests that the answers are an inside job and offers the questions to sit with in order to find your own answers. I've seen people getting a little preachy about the subject of sobriety, and I'm sure you have too. So I'm betting you'll find her style refreshing and approachable. If you're wondering where I find guests like these, I get asked that a lot, and the source is different for each guest. So I started putting the source of each guest in my Monday email, along with the regular info about the episode. On Saturday, I send out a Cliff Notes and Clickable Links email in case what you heard was so good you wished you could have taken notes. If you're not getting those and you want to be included, you can text REAL to 66866 if you're in the U.S., or you can go to MeredithForReal.com if you're elsewhere. If you're already getting those, you're probably one of my amazing loyal listeners. Thank you so much for that. I can't tell you how cool it is to look at my download reports and see that you're not only listening to the latest episode, but also digging into past episodes. Thank you. Seriously. And if you're new here, welcome. Around here, we press play to get curious, disrupt the algorithm, to grow into better humans. And we talk about everything from refugees to robots. So bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. There's no specific order to listen to episodes. And if you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one with the former meth addict turned celebrity photographer, episode 46. All right. Enjoy the show. Have you seen a friend on social media announce their sobriety and you thought, wow, I didn't know that they were an alcoholic. Have you ever Googled, am I an alcoholic? Well, that's exactly what my next guest did. And although the answer was yes, there wasn't an immediate transformation. It was a winding journey between her Google search in 2014 and sobriety in 2019, all while working full-time as a pharmaceutical biochemist. Well, she recently traded her lab coat for a microphone to be a full-time podcaster for her show, Sober Powered, where she talks about the science and psychology of addiction, 
with topics like mommy wine culture and drinking dreams. So whether you're wanting to better understand your newly sober friends, are sober curious yourself, or approaching your own rock bottom, this episode promises to be a shame-free zone and the meaningful entertainment that you've come to expect. Today, she's going to help us finally understand the difference between a pastime and a problem, why why we drink matters, and if it's possible to be a heavy drinker, but not an alcoholic. Relatable realist, two years going strong, sober scientist, Jill Teets. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. What an intro. <laughs> well, I really love your show. I'm so glad that we met in real life, in the analog, as I like to say, at our podcasting conference. And I really appreciate your non-preachy approach to sobriety. I mean, you're really big on positive self-talk and like creating a shame-free uh, environment for yourself and for others. And I was hoping we could maybe kick things off by you talking about why that matters to you. Yeah, there's so much shame in feeling like you can't control something that that is so much and that prevents someone from getting help that I try to be mindful of removing any additional shame in the way that I talk about things because that that keeps people stuck for years. Just the shame that why can't I control this thing? It seems like everyone else can. That makes sense. I never thought about the um, kind of not innate, but the shame that already comes with the package of alcoholism. So you, I would see where you have to separate that a little bit in order to move forward. And you didn't quit cold turkey. You did like a 90 day challenge where you stopped drinking and then you went back to drinking. How, how did you decide that just taking a break wasn't the answer? So I took the 90 days because I wanted to cure myself um, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, but I thought 90 was better than 30. I didn't think I could be cured in 30. So I just decided 90. And then when I went back to drinking, I did actually moderate for the first time in my whole life. I would have two drinks on Saturday night and I wasn't drinking any more than that. I wasn't like fighting off cravings or doing anything. And I was a daily drinker before. So I thought I found the secret but then, you know, eventually I went back to my normal drinking, which was every day with no control. And when I saw the same symptoms come back and the same suffering, I knew like there's no amount of time that's going to fix this. And then that, so that 90 day experience and having it all come back exactly the same as it was before um, convinced me that that's just how I drink. That's it. And what were the symptoms? So I had really bad anxiety um, that would keep me up all night long. I would stay up with self-hatred and suicidal thoughts. And I would actually force myself. I would like drink and pass out, obviously. And then I would wake up and start all of this. And I would force myself to stay awake from that like middle of the night anxiety jolt Till the sun came up thinking about like what a loser I am and really scary thoughts. And that was exactly what prompted the 90 days. So to see like literally nothing had changed, it's exactly the same as it was before. I realized like, even if I took 10 years off, I'll eventually just drink this same exact way again. Are those symptoms pretty common for people who are 
experiencing alcoholism, but maybe don't know it. I know you're not like a clinical psychologist or anything, but you seem to have a really great community of people who are open and sharing. So anecdotally anyway, is that kind of what you've seen? Yeah. Anxiety is common for everybody, whether you have a problem or not, especially if you have anxiety normally. Extra anxiety after drinking heavily is common. And if you drink heavily every day, then you're going to have a lot of anxiety. And for people that struggle with alcohol, depression, low self-esteem, and eventually suicidal thoughts are super common. I thought that I was the only one struggling with that. And I was afraid to tell people because it's such a serious thing to say. But so many people struggle with that at the end and because it just beats you down. It just beats down your self-worth and you're so depressed and hopeless that eventually you start thinking really scary things. I thought alcohol uh, remedied anxiety that, you know, when people were shaken, you know, their nerves got the best of them. Comedians before they get on stage, uh, people on a flight. I mean, is there some... For some people, it is their medicinal benefit, and then others, it makes it worse. So short-term, it helps everybody. Um, Short-term, it relieves your anxiety. If you struggle with chemical depression, um, short-term and in low doses, alcohol can actually like kind of correct that a little bit. But long-term, it swings you back really hard in the original direction. So the way that you can think about it is like whatever you're, whatever you're trying to get from drinking, your brain's going to cause the opposite response to balance you back out. So if you're drinking to relax, your body's going to like hype you up to try to bring you back up to balance. And then when the alcohol is gone, now you're just super hyped up. And that's why people feel very anxious. Um, so it's just like the way that brain chemistry works. But short term, it absolutely does take care of anxiety. And that's factual. And that's why so many people get stuck because they're only thinking about like instant gratification, fixing this problem immediately. So why does the reason that we drink matter? Because we some people do drink when they feel nervous or anxious, but obviously there's this next level of continual drinking. Why does the motivation even factor into helping you kind of self-assess where you're at? So a very interesting study that I read um, from 2021 that I can send you to link out for people looked at self-reported reasons for drinking. And they found that all of the non-addicted controls reported drinking to socialize, which is typically and historically what we use alcohol for. And people that had alcohol use disorder, they reported not drinking for socializing. That was like very low on um, the list for them. They reported drinking for coping with stress because they were craving alcohol and to reduce anxiety and depression. So what they concluded from their study is that as your motives shift, it coincides with developing a problem. So once you're like using alcohol to either avoid, to cope with, to change your mood, um, to fix mental health, once you're like using it for something, it's leading you down the path of having a problem. Is it hard for a lot of people to distinguish 
that transition because even listening to this, you know, your answer is so beautifully concise, but the concept itself has a lot of, it's subjective a little bit. Is that, do people have trouble like deciding where they're at? And like, do you have any personal experience with, you know, tips or hacks that can help you be a little bit more objective when it comes to yourself? Absolutely. So define socializing in your head. So I've had people say to me, but I did drink to socialize, you know, and then you dig a little deeper and socializing to them meant drinking alone on their couch, texting people. Oh, (laughs) that's not socializing. Right. Right. But in their head, they believe I drank to socialize or because they also drank while they socialized because we drink all the time when we have a problem, um, they can put themselves in the social drinker category. So I would define like, what is socializing? Like not to you, but what actually is socializing? It's going out with other people and not like in your house by yourself. So I would look at like your outcomes, like what's happening right before you drink? What are you feeling? Like, do you, do you drink and you feel a lot of relief afterwards? That might be because you're trying to use it for some outcome. So some people, uh, drink, you know, like you said, socially, but then others, I don't know. They, I think they define alcoholism. You know, I've heard people have this conversation like, well, what is alcoholism, especially when um, determining it for a person in their life? And often you hear, well, it doesn't disrupt their uh, like they can go to work fine. You know, they uh, I don't know, like some people just behave differently on alcohol. Like they don't they aren't embarrassing. They're not fighting. Some people are. But I guess can you can you be an alcoholic? I'm trying to figure out how to even word this question. Can you be an alcoholic without hiding drinks in your pencil drawer at work? Can you be an alcoholic if you are not drinking first thing in the morning? Can you be an alcoholic and have just a six pack after work every day but not wake up with a hangover? Yeah, so the stigma tells us that you have to be like the worst drinker in the entire world to have a problem. And either you're the absolute worst drinker ever or you're fine. And that's not the case. I've never hidden drinks ever. Um, I never drank at work. I got my master's degree while I was drinking. Like you can be highly, highly functional and still have a problem. I think the only question that matters is does your drinking make you miserable? Are you miserable? And if the answer is yes, then maybe you need to reevaluate because I thought I just had this horrible life. Everything sucked. My husband was the worst. You know, my job was the worst. My family, the worst. I was the worst. And alcohol helped me get a little bit of a break from my horrible life. But in reality, alcohol was causing this spiral that made me super dramatic and feel like everything was so bad. And when I stopped drinking, I was like, oh, everything's kind of a disaster right now, obviously, because I messed up a lot of stuff, but I can fix it. It doesn't have to be a disaster forever. So it, it clouds your judgment. It like makes you see the world in a different way from 
the way that it actually is. And we think like alcohol is our best friend and that it's helping. But if you're miserable, that's a sign it's not your best friend. What do you think holds people back from starting their sobriety journey? It's so normal. Drinking is just so normal and cool. It's literally everywhere. Yeah, it is. I I get like a an ice cream. I guess I'm embarrassing myself now. I get like delivery ice cream. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> That's a thing? Yes, I do it a lot. Um <laughs> And they ask me, do you want to add alcohol to your order? Do you want your dasher to pick up alcohol? And it's like, no, I don't need alcohol with my ice cream. And like Instacart will ask you, there's like billboards all over the place with alcohol. It's in like every movie and show and they drink heavily with no consequences. Like it's everywhere at work. There's like alcohol in the kitchen. There's work happy hours. Like we feel like we're going to be left out. And no one's going to want to be friends with us anymore. And we believe that like everybody drinks. Wow. That, I mean, I am a little stuck on ice cream delivery, but I'm still with you. Try it. <laughs> That's incredible. You're right though. Our society has given a total pass to alcohol. It's, it's, um, you know, on pictures of wine on, uh, tote bags. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, mommy wine culture, um, I remember watching Cougarville, which was a sitcom with Courtney Cox um, at one time. And, and Bob was the name of the giant wine glass. You know, it, it was, oh, I'm only having one glass of wine, but it was like three bottles fit in that glass. And yeah, I, it's almost like not cool to be sober. Although I do see more and more people choosing sobriety for what I imagine are different of reasons. And there are it's creating market signals. There's companies who are making non-alcoholic drinks. And I guess that kind of leads me to my next question, life after sobriety, especially when your husband drinks socially, you, I presume, live together. What does that look like? Do you, can you drink non-alcoholic drinks without being triggered? Do you keep alcohol in the house when y'all go to parties together? Does he abstain just for your benefit? Tell me about that. Yeah, so I set some boundaries. I was a wine drinker. Wine was life for me. Um, and my husband was also a wine drinker. So I asked him when I stopped, because when I stopped, I said it was forever. I wasn't, some people like one day at a time. I don't, I just said forever. Um, so I said, can you never drink wine around me ever again? <laughs> And it might sound like, wow, you know, that's unreasonable, but it's really not. I am obsessed with alcohol. My brain is all about it. All it wants is wine. So he doesn't care about alcohol as much as I do. So it's really not a big ask. You know, he's not going to die if he doesn't drink wine around me. So I asked him to never drink wine ever around me. And he drinks beer or mixed drinks. And we do have beers in the fridge occasionally for him. And that's not a big deal for me. Wine around me would be a really big deal. Um, when we go out, it's fine if he drinks around me. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. If trash TV leaves you feeling drained, 
and you want to support creators like yours truly, check out StreamMoco. You can search shows by your mood and even, you know, watch my show, The Curious Introvert. For every $3.99 subscription, they give away a dollar for good and support their creators like your girl. Find my affiliate link in the episode description or the bio link in my Instagram account. StreamMoco, the streaming network that gives a damn. If you've got backyard barbecue plans for 2022, but mosquitoes are not invited, I recommend Insec. I've been using their pest control service for several years now. They have a certified mosquito identification specialist on staff, and pollinator care is always top of mind. If you live in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. The UWF Historic Trust. We shoot the show at the Pensacola Museum of History. It not only houses exhibits of lesser-known Pensacola history, it's an event space too. So if you need a unique space in downtown Pensacola for a fundraiser, networking event, or a corporate party, take a look at historicpensacola.org. And if you want to tour one of the 12 museums, get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Get emails by texting REAL to 66866. Now back to the show. I do personally like non-alcoholic drinks. I think they're very helpful in social situations. I think they've also given me a glimpse into what you know, moderate social drinkers actually experience when they drink alcohol, because I only know my own experience of like obsessing and chugging. Um, So it's been interesting for me too, but some people get very triggered from those. So that's not always a good solution, but yeah, I think just talking about it with your partner and your friends and making sure they know how to accommodate you. Cause like I said, no one in my life cares about alcohol more than me. So it's okay for me to make these requests that they support me. And let's talk about how much is a lot. Uh, You have some more objective data from a study that helps us measure how much is a lot. And then I'd love to uh, transition into the question, how do we know, how, if we, can we be a heavy drinker, like light, moderate, heavy, can you live in that heavy category and not be an alcoholic, but first help us measure it out. How much is a lot? So most studies will group people in like low, moderate, and heavy. So the low drinkers are typically like one to seven drinks a week. And what's a drink? The moderate. Oh, that's a good one too. Yeah. What's an actual drink? Because if you go to a restaurant, you might actually be getting like two to three drinks in your glass. So a standard drink is actually really small. Um, So it's one 5% beer. So if you're drinking like really strong IPAs, that's not one drink, even though it's, it's one, even though the volume is the same, the percentage matters. It's also only five ounces of 12% wine, which is a teeny tiny amount of wine, five ounces. And 12% wine, like a lot of us are drinking 14 or 15% wine. So now that's like way less than five ounces, you know, or like one shot, which is, you know, pretty typical. Okay. So low so was how many drinks a week? One to seven standard drinks. Okay. So not much. And moderate? 
Moderate is eight to 14. And then heavy is typically above 14 because the guidelines for men are 14 or less drinks a week, no more than two a day. For women, they're no more than seven drinks a week, one drink or less a day. So some studies, if they're just looking at women, they might even group eight drinks or above as the heavy drinkers. And I read that once and I was like, if eight drinks a week is considered heavy to you guys, (laughs) then what about the 89 drinks that I was having? (laughs) 89. That's a very specific number. It sounds like you actually counted it. (laughs) I used to try to count to get it. I wanted to get it under 30 a week. That was like moderate drinking for me, um, was under 30. Like Really, if I could get it under 25, then I would be like a superstar. But I didn't actually count above that because I didn't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's so fascinating. I think that puts a lot of people in a higher category than they thought. Yeah. Okay. So here's the secondary question to that Can you be a heavy drinker and not an alcoholic? Absolutely. You can. Um, some people, will never get addicted no matter how much they drink. And it doesn't mean that, you know, if you're addicted, you have the shakes and you've ruined your life. You can be emotionally and psychologically addicted without being physically dependent. So someone who is mentally addicted, uh, they obsess over it. They think about it all the time. They can't imagine never drinking again. They can't take time off. They can't leave drinks behind, like things like that. Their life becomes very focused around alcohol. But other people, maybe they're going through a tough time and they lean on alcohol a bit and they drink very heavily. And then as the tough time resolves, they back off naturally. That's someone, those people, you know, aren't that common, but it is possible. And that kind of goes back to the uh, alcohol gets a big pass in society as well, because while it is understandable to have somebody lean on alcohol during a tough time, for them to continue to drink is also perfectly normal. Meanwhile, you know, I remember when I first moved to Pensacola, Um, I didn't drink hardly at all. And it just wasn't something I was comfortable doing. I just didn't, I wasn't into it. And uh, the fact that I wasn't into it made other people so uncomfortable. We couldn't even have like a whole conversation. They were like, but why aren't you drinking? And I was like, "Um, I don't know. I just, uh, I probably should have thought of something really clever, but eh, whatever. So I just said, "I, I just don't want to. I'm really happy with, also I didn't, I don't drink soda. So like I was very obviously drinking a water with lemon. So maybe that was my mistake of not blending in properly, but uh, it made them so uncomfortable that that was like the whole gist of our conversation was them interrogating me. And so it, I can see where there's a lot of barriers for those who are trying to move into sobriety. Would you suggest something like the 90 day challenge to someone who's trying to better self-assess or do you think that's harmful? I think if you're scared that like never drinking again seems impossible for you, like life wouldn't even be worth living, definitely try somewhere between 30 and 90. I personally don't think 30 is enough because if you've really like blasted yourself with alcohol for years, um, you get a lot of mental clarity around the 60 day mark. 
So there's a lot of really positive. So the first month is mostly like physical changes and your health improves and your liver is like, you know, restored. And the second month is more like cognitive changes. And those are really important for understanding why you drink and understanding cause and effect of your drinking. So that's why I recommend like a little bit longer. But when I was drinking every day, like even one day seemed impossible. So I first started years ago with seven days and that's not even enough to get like out of withdrawal. That's about two weeks on average, but it was enough to have experiences sober. And you can't forget those. Like you can't forget that you did a weekend sober and didn't die and didn't have the most (laughs) miserable time ever. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I joke with people. Yeah, sobriety. It's uh, it's also an experience, you know, should. Yeah. It's good to try sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to prove to yourself, I can do it because we don't believe in ourselves because our self-worth is so destroyed. We don't think we can make it through a weekend without drinking. And like, I used to just wake up and wait for the bar to open so that I could go to brunch and then just like drink all day and all night. And that's what I did on the weekend. So when you remove alcohol, it's like, literally, what do I do? Like, All I did was drink. So what do I do now? And once you get through that and you actually have an okay time, you build up more confidence. So even a week is fine, but I recommend trying to get past two months because you'll really understand your drinking then. I couldn't understand it in seven days. And is it uh, always alcohol abstinence forever for people who are alcoholics or is it always an all or nothing solution or is there, is there a a spot for moderation for people who have identified themselves as alcoholics? In my opinion and the opinion of most people, um, there's no moderation because if we could moderate, we would just do that. Um, it's not something that can be learned. Like we're not choosing to not moderate, you know, um, and alcohol is not essential for life, like food. So you can just remove it. And I think some people can achieve moderation with very strict rules and forcing themselves to white knuckle their way through cravings and, and like stop drinking before they're satisfied And they can do that just fine, but the obsession is still alive. They still think about alcohol all the time. They think about how much can I drink? How do I make sure I don't have too much? What's the rule for tonight? Like, what's the plan to stop? And then occasionally they will mess up like we all do. And then they will just like relentlessly beat themselves up for that. And then that starts the obsession again. And, oh my God, I got to moderate. I have to figure this out. When you cut it out and you say, never again, I am not drinking, I'm sober forever, the obsession goes away. I don't have to think about, can I drink today? I said I wasn't going to drink today. Well, I drank yesterday, like maybe I shouldn't drink two days in a row, or, or, but it's Thursday. Like you don't have to have these internal, um, like dialogues with yourself trying to justify why or why not. And it frees up your whole life. And The other point that's really important, social drinkers don't think that way. They just drink or they don't. And then they drink 
and they get satisfied with a small amount and then they stop and they move on. And if they're satisfied and there's a third of their beer, whatever, where me do not waste your drink. I'll, (laughs) I'll finish that for you. Like, how dare you? So I think also recognizing that this obsession isn't something that you're supposed to have. It's not something you can tame, you know, or learn to like control because you're not choosing to be out of control. You read so many studies about behavior and the mental health aspects of alcoholism. Have you found that recovering alcoholics benefit any from specific supplementation like magnesium to downregulate their autonomic nervous system and increase executive function or like Am I just being a dirty hippie? <laughs> You're not being a dirty hippie. Um, I think if you were a very heavy drinker for years and years and years, it's likely you have some deficiencies um, just because alcohol prevents you know, proper absorption in your digestive system and you know, eating is cheating. In the, in the heavy drinking world. So you don't want, you don't want your buzz to be affected by food. So we don't eat very much, you know, so you, or you might like have the drunchies at the end of the night and just eat disgusting food. So you might be malnourished when you do get sober. Um, so supplementing in the beginning, you know, could be helpful and you can check with your blood work, but I don't think there's anything like if you don't do it, you're, you're going to have a bad time or your sobriety is at risk. I think it's just dependent on the individual. That's so interesting. You just brought up like three things I didn't even know about. <laughs> That's part of the reason why I really enjoy listening to your podcast. As we wrap up, I'd love for you to paint a picture of sobriety now, because I, I feel like I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone listening to this who might be sober curious and sobriety looks like the absence of alcohol and that's it. You know, it looks like punishment, like being grounded. So can you tell us about how your life has improved since being sober two years? So for me, sobriety means I don't have to hate myself anymore, which is a gift. I thought that I was just a loser, a depressed person, a suicidal person, all this stuff. I don't have to be. It was just the alcohol. And when I removed the alcohol, I could work on things in therapy. I could improve my life. I could make changes. I could work on my marriage. So another thing about sobriety is like, I can literally do anything as long as I want it badly enough. Like before you break your promise to yourself every single day, When you say, I'm not going to drink tonight, or I'm only going to have two drinks tonight, and then you have 300 again, like every other day. And that beats down your self-esteem. And for me, it got to the point where like, I would try to set a goal. And as I'm thinking the goal, another voice would come in my head that would be like, yeah, right. You know, you're not doing that. So I couldn't even think up goals for myself without beating myself down first. So now that I don't have that self-hatred anymore. And that voice, I can do whatever I want. I'm, it's freedom, which is why I have my free tattoo. Ooh, um, I like it. But yeah, it's, it's freedom. You don't have to obsess about alcohol anymore. You don't have to hate yourself anymore. It's, 
It's just the best. And all you have to give up is stupid alcohol, which isn't even, you know, that great. It, it kind of isn't. Thank you so much for sharing this. Tell everyone where they can follow you and, and listen to your podcast. So if you search for Sober Powered, you'll find me all over. That's my show, my Instagram, uh, my Facebook group too, if you're sober curious and want a safe space. And I'll be linking uh, the studies that you mentioned and the social media resources also in my email when this episode comes out. So if you're listening or watching and you want to be a part of that and get that email, just text R-E-A-L to 66866 if you're in the United States. If you're outside the U.S., you can go to MeredithForReal.com and sign up to get the email there. Thank you so much, Jill. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've loved a couple episodes of this show, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the Good Pods app. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one with the former meth addict turned celebrity photographer. It's episode 46. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a PhD researcher who invented earbuds that help you downregulate your vagus nerve. <laughs>